It was good to meet you this morning as well. And there are many faces here that I recognize and some that I don't, but um, it is good to be back here. This is the church where I grew up, and I've started attending Faith Alliance Church back in 1986, and, and it was just a few days ago, actually, that, uh, that yeah, my, my very first time that I came here. I don't remember it well. Uh, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't even a week old at that time, but... But I've grown up here and I'm so thankful for so many of you that have poured into my life and not just my life, my family, my brothers, and so many others that we could um, look at and say, yeah, you have had an influence. And that's, that is just a testimony to God's faithfulness, is it not? That God brings the people, he uses his church and his people for his mission and as my dad mentioned, I serve as an elder at Forest Alliance Church, which is over in Lynchburg. I began my role as elder in February of 2020. Man, what a time to start as an elder uh, right, before, right before COVID. And our, our pastor there retired in February of 2020, which is another, uh, his timing was impe impeccable. But as we have continued through, we actually haven't had a full-time pastor at Forest Alliance for these past three years. We've gone through different um, candidating processes, but, um, but God hasn't brought anyone yet. And so I've served along with several of other of the elders, and we have rotated through. And that has been such a formative time for me as well. And I Regret that my family here, or my, my wife and two kids, weren't able to be here this morning. Uh, right, after, uh, right after our church service over in Forest, they have, to move, they have to go right to a cantata that they're doing today of all days. And so they weren't able to join us, but, um, but hopefully we'll be able to show, uh, we'll be able to meet at some other point. But I do have a picture here, if you can put up the the pictures, I do have a picture of my family that we took just a few months ago here. I don't know if it's reaching, but uh, we'll try and get that up. And as we, there we go, um, as we think about all that, uh, what I wanted to share with you, I, I, was, I was praying about this and, and saying, what is it that I could share with you that you don't already know it. You, there are so many here that I have such tremendous respect for. And my hope today is that as we look into God's word, that he will show us what it is that he has for each of us. And as I've been preaching for the past several years at Forest Alliance, one thing that's really impressed upon my, my own heart is this idea, John Piper makes this comparison, that some people view the word of God as a string of pearls, that you look at a verse and you say, wow, look at that verse, that's, that's really great. And, and we look at Bible verses like, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, and all things work together for good, and the story of David and Goliath, and and the story of Moses leading the Egyptians, or sorry, leading the Israelites out of, out of Egypt. And we look at each of those as separate stories, separate truths. And 
Piper's point is that instead of looking at the scripture as a string of pearls, that we should instead consider it as a chain, a continuous chain of, of thoughts and reasons and arguments that form together to tell one grand story. Because when we take this book, so often we rush to say, how is this book about me? But in truth... This book is ultimately about him. And that's the question that we should come to when we open his word. What is God saying about himself? It's ultimately about him. Of course, there are hundreds and hundreds of commands and insights for us as believers, as, as children of God. But in the end, this Bible is about him. And it tells his story and how we are to play a part in that. And so I have taken this, uh, this truth, and I, I want to see how that would apply in Matthew chapter 6. And so if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. This idea of the chain of arguments really... Has, um, has opened a lot of new, uh, just new treasures that God has given to me. And I, I have found that it's actually oftentimes the little words that make such a big difference. Little words like for and therefore and because and so and so that. All of those little words show a connection between these thoughts that are in the Bible. And in Matthew chapter 6, we find those little words. And I hope that by the end of our time together, you'll notice some of these little words, and, and they appear all through Scripture. This is not the only place where this happens. And these little words help show us the, the string of thoughts. Sometimes we go astray and we say, well, this is what the verse is about. And then we take a bigger look at the context and say, mm, maybe, maybe there's more to this than I originally understood. And so I want us to pay attention to these little words that actually connect all of these points together. Let's start in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And I'm going to make the case that even if your Bible breaks this up into different sections, I, I believe that this is actually one continuous argument, as it were, one continuous line of thought with a main point that Jesus is making here. Let's start in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth, moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come into your word and hear from you, we ask that through the power of your spirit, that you will awaken our minds and our hearts Lord, that we might know you, love you more deeply, follow you more closely. Lord, that others would see that truth and that life lived out in our lives. That your name would be glorified. And that others would come to know you because of the change that you have made in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we begin with this section, Jesus is putting this, he, he mentions this. He talks about laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven and, and the eye is the lamp of the body and, and not being anxious. He puts all of that in what many of us are familiar with called the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we look at the context, Jesus' whole point in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, is to upend the traditional interpretation of the Pharisees. They had, they had brought the understanding of the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, and the Tanakh, the whole Old Testament, and had prescribed it really to the letter. They had outward physical uh, uh, rituals and, and practices that you had to do so that you were a good follower of God's word. And Jesus looks at that interpretation and says, you're only concerned about the outward, and you're missing the point. You're missing the whole point. That is one of the goals, I believe, in the Sermon on the Mount. But the second one is to show and to establish the pattern. What was God's intent when he gave his word? Now, before, before Matthew, th this is talking about the Old Testament. This is from Genesis to Malachi. What was it that God was after? What did he want his people to look like, to act like, to think like. And this is the context for this section here in Matthew chapter 6. It starts by saying, do not lay up treasures on earth. Instead, we're supposed to, it doesn't say do not lay up treasures. It doesn't say that. It actually forbids a specific location for those treasures. So often we think that as believers, there is nothing that I should do to seek after God's treasure. And, and, and the Bible doesn't say that. It's like, well, if I just follow Christ, that's, that's everything. And, and the scripture is clear. We are actually to lay up treasures 
but it's not to be on earth. It's to be in heaven. Hebrews 11 says that everyone who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is what? A rewarder. What, what does that imply? That God does give treasures, but that we are to seek after him first, and that these other rewards and treasures follow. But it doesn't say not to lay up treasures, but it does, it does express that we're not to lay up treasures on earth. This idea of, of treasuring up or, or laying up, um, in the Greek, we, we have thesaurizo. It's this idea of saving up or putting aside or accumulating. It's what we do if you have a 401k. You, you make money and you, you stash it away so that it's ready for you in the future. It's kind of like that idea in, I don't know if you've seen the movie Up, but there's this scene where every... Every so often they throw coins and dollars into this savings jar to go to Paradise Falls. This is their big trip that they hope to go on. And of course, life happens and they have to break that jar and start all over again. But you see that idea of storing up and, and building wealth and, and putting it all together in one place. And Jesus says, we tend to do that. That's our natural disposition, but the temptation is to look at what's around us and say, this is where I need to put my treasure. This earth and the things that I have right now, I need to protect, I need to store, I need to make sure that I'm set because who knows what's going to happen to me in the future. And Jesus says, if that's your focus, you've put your treasure in the wrong place. And we see the next verse that says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this is our first small word that I want to draw attention to. Jesus says, for. What does that mean? There's a connection here between what he just said and this point that he is making here. He's saying that there is a reason. This is the reason that we are to store up treasures on heaven. It's interesting. He doesn't say, I kind of would have expected this. I would have expected him to say, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Isn't it kind of strange? I don't know if it, maybe it's not strange to you. I kind of would have expected him to say, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. But he doesn't say that. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, he's saying, build a pile of heavenly treasure because your treasure and your heart are in the same location. So it seems that Jesus is saying here that there are actions that I can do. There are actions I can take to treasure heaven, to treasure God more. And that those practices are going to incline my heart toward him more and more. This is not a salvation by works message here. I'm not saying that as we as we fulfill the works, the, the ways that we can lay up treasure for heaven, that we are going to see uh, or to be saved or justified before God. That's not the point here. This, I believe, is talking about being made more and more holy. This is the process that we call sanctification. That as we follow Christ day by day, already knowing him, already being filled with the Holy Spirit, that we become more and more like him. 
And this is the point of treasuring Christ versus treasuring wealth. My actions not only show what I treasure, but they can influence the object of my affection. For example, now this is an interesting one because of our society that we live in. I, I do not personally know anybody, anyone who has married a, as an arranged marriage. Now maybe there are some parents out there that were hoping to arrange marriages, but I do not know anyone personally. But it was interesting to me, and there are many factors for this, I'm sure, that in some countries, um, arranged marriages are very normal, and that the statistics for many different reasons, I'm sure, the statistics for arranged marriages show more success rate than marriages for love. Am I making a case against marriages for love? No, I, I have one myself. So I'm not, I'm not trying to bash that. What I am saying, though, is that so often we, we, think this, we think in this pattern. I love someone that I'm dating, therefore I should marry them. And in in other cultures, it's, it's the opposite. I married them, so I should love them. That's, a, that's quite the reversal. And we forget that the practices of our daily life incline our heart to cherish those things more and more. And so as we practice the, the, the normal disciplines, the, the normal things that Christ lays out for us here in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places, those day-to-day -day laying aside treasures in heaven actually pull our heart more and more toward heaven itself, toward God, toward treasuring Christ above all other things. There was a, short, there was a list that um, Matthew Rudin listed out. He said, here are some of the things that it looks like to lay aside treasures in heaven, being humble and pure in heart, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, showing mercy, making peace, being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, being salt on the earth, being light of the world, following God's commands, resisting anger, being faithful to one's spouse, keeping your word, turning the other cheek, providing for physical needs, going the extra mile, loving your enemies. It sounds to me like heaven's ledger works by a different accounting system than the one the world is used to. But now, the question is, okay, you, you've give, we've given some of these examples. Jesus, what are you saying? What does that look like to be laying aside treasures in heaven? And, and I believe that he answers that in this next passage. In verse 22, it says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I don't know about you, but it, this was a bit of a mystery for me when I was reading through. I felt like, okay, I understand the, the first section here about not laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then the next part after that, you can't serve two masters and not being anxious. But what about this part? Does your Bible separate this into a little section and they're like, well... Uh, this is, this, is, this is a teaching that Jesus included, but we're going to just put this as the eyes, the lamp of the body, because it's, it seems out of place, at least to our English ears. And um, any, um, anyone, if you've, been in, if you've been in another culture, if you've had to learn another language, there are all sorts of idioms and cultural expressions and, and things that are completely foreign to us that you actually have to learn. Think about... Um, 
I think, about, I, I think about the example when I was teaching some of my students. I teach English as a second language, and, and so I work with students who are from many different cultures, many different countries. In Chinese, if uh, we were doing a review game and we were using Uno cards for this review game, we were shuffling the cards. And one of the students said, I'm going to, I'm going to wash the cards. And I looked at him and I said, oh, uh, you don't want to get those wet. He said, no, no, I'm going to wash the cards. And he takes them and he shuffles them. In Chinese, the, the phrase wash cards means shuffle. But for us, we would never say that and uh, unless, uh, unless they were sticky or something, but you would never wash cards. That's, a, that's an idiom. That's a, that's a phrase. And here, sometimes we forget, and Jesus is teaching most likely in Aramaic, perhaps in Hebrew, um, and this was written in Greek. So there's a lot of distance between us and the text when it was originally written. And so it really helps to do some word studies and to ask yourself, what does that mean to have an, a healthy eye or a good eye? What is he talking about here? Well, the first, the first clue that we could see actually comes from uh, Matthew, Matthew itself, in the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Uh, remember, they had agreed to work for a master of a house for a denarius, and at the end of the day, they all got uh, what was their fair share or what they agreed to, but it turned out that, that he gave all of them a denarius, even though there were different people who had worked different hours. And the ones that had worked much longer started to resent the fact that those who had worked for such short time got the same amount. And it says in, um, in verse 11, in, in Matthew chapter uh, 20, I believe, I hadn't written down the chapter, but I'm pretty sure it's 20. You can fact check me on that later. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have been born, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or, and here's the literal phrase, or is your eye bad because I am good? That should clue us in a little bit. We have th that phrase, a bad eye. Hmm. And, and we see here bad eye and good eye. Now, if we, this is, this is a word study here that we're doing for the phrase bad eye and good eye. In American English, not Australian English, good eye does not mean the same thing in Australia. But in American English, good eye, what does that look like? And in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 9, it says, whoever has a good eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. Okay, putting together Proverbs 22 and and also this parable of the workers in the vineyard, I think we can get a better picture. What is, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that he, he's using this idiom, good eye, which really talks about generosity, about giving. And this bad eye, which has to do with stinginess or envy or greed. What is Jesus saying then? He's saying that the, the generosity that we show the good eye that we have causes our whole body to be full of light. And that if we are 
if our eye is bad, the, the greediness that we may have or the stinginess or the envy, our whole body will be full of darkness. You see, Jesus, I think, is giving a test here. He's saying, how do you know if you're laying up for yourselves treasures on heaven? Well, do you have a good eye? Are you generous to those in need? Or are you so stingy that you just have to hold on to everything because who knows if, if you're going to have enough for the next day? And then Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, depending on the translation, the, the literal word here is mammon, and that encompasses the idea of money, but I believe it also is a bigger term than just dollar bills. It, it is the stuff that we own, the wealth that we have. It's really material possessions. And Jesus is saying you cannot serve both. So how do you know if you're serving one or the other? Jesus just said generosity is one of those indicators. And it would be so easy, right? It would be so simple if, if Jesus just said, well, you're supposed to give 10% or 25% of everything that you have, and then you know that you are being generous. Uh, give half of what you have, and then you know that your life is not ruled by wealth. But he doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't speak of it that way. Instead, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, what does Paul say? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a 50% giver. I think that would be easier in some cases. But it says a cheerful giver. Why? Because it's the heart that God is concerned about. It's the attitude behind our giving we could give 90% and still be stingy if, if our heart is in the wrong place. And so this idea of no one can serve two masters, I believe that may be the key point. It often, in, in Hebrew thought, often the key point doesn't come at the beginning. We talked about some of the cultural differences. In Western culture, what do we like to do? I, I've taught my students this. Topic sentence first. Then, your supporting sentences, reason one, two, three, four, and then, at the end, concluding sentence, which restates the topic sentence that you, begun, uh, that you started at the top there. That's how people will know what your main point is. But that's not how all cultures have done that through the ages. And in Hebrew culture, it was very common to see the main point in the middle. Uh, we see this with a form called chiasms, where it, it blocks off and, and in the very center is the focal point. I believe here that Jesus may be making his, his point of focus in verse 24 when he says, you cannot serve God and money. You, you can serve God. You can serve money. You will serve something or someone, but you can't serve both. You can't serve both God and wealth. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived and died in Germany during World War II um, under Nazi rule, he, he wrote in the book, The Cost of Discipleship, about the thraldom of material things. He understood that wealth can have this pernicious pull on us and that our ultimate satisfaction cannot be in that material wealth. It must be found in Christ, in Christ alone. There is no other option for the Christian. And so here's the question. How do you know which way your heart is inclined? What, what's the test that we can do? 
I believe Jesus gives the answer here. One was right before it. He said, is your eye good? Are, are you being generous toward those around you? And then the second, that's the outward. That's the external. But then there's an internal attitude of the heart. And that's where Jesus goes next. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Here, we see that one of those little words again, right? Therefore, therefore I tell you. What is Jesus doing? He is connecting what he has just said about serving God or serving mammon, material things, and now he's connecting that to this idea about not being anxious, He's saying, because you know you should lay up treasures for, you, for yourself in heaven and be generous and serve God, this means that anxiety cannot be a part of your life. It has no place for the believer. Now, when I say anxiety, I'm not talking, there, there's different types of fear, right? If, if a lion pops through this door and I say, don't be anxious, that's not the response that, that would be appropriate. There is a God-given flight or fight response that, that God has instilled in us for certain times to react in a specific way. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about a, a gun pointed at your head. He's talking about this general anxiety of worry about, oh, I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. What about 10 years from now? What if, what if my, my crops fail? What if the water, what if the rain doesn't, doesn't come? What if, what if my job disappears tomorrow? This is an anxiety that is based in the future, founded on unknown information that we imagine. This is the kind of, this is the kind of anxiety that really speaks to a heart issue of where your service lies, where your heart is, is placed, and it seems that Jesus is saying here, not worrying about material blessings is a heart attitude that helps us fulfill his command to serve God. And here's an example that he gives. In verse 26, he says this, look at the birds of the air. They, don't, they do not sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Each morning when I, some, some mornings, my wife drives our kids into the school where I work and I get there a little earlier. Um, some mornings I'll drive them in. And uh, there, was, there was a long stretch where, where when we were driving down the road, there would be this huge flock of birds, hundreds or maybe thousands of birds that would fly out of this one area and just come across the sky. And it was really predictable. Like, okay, it's, it's 7.15 and you can just mark it with a clock. And we would see that each time. And as we passed by, I would say to the girls, look at that. Those birds are still there today. God provided for them again. And he did that yesterday. And he did that the day before then. And you can see God's faithfulness in providing for the life that he gives. And it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. God cares for the birds. And they aren't made in his image. They aren't going to inherit eternal life. And if that same God is providing physical, sustaining grace for them, 
how much more so for us. Your life is not an accident. My life is not some random event that happened that has no purpose. If God has a plan, if God has a purpose, if God sovereignly has brought us to this moment, to this day, for such a time as this, how much more is he going to give us the grace to sustain that life? That's the point that Jesus is making here. In verse 27, he says, which of you can add a single hour to his span of life. Even medical science recognizes this, right? We know the dangers of anxiety and worry and how that affects our heart and how that affects our stomach and how that affects our lungs and our mind and everything else. And I understand anxiety is a complicated issue. And you might say, well, it's an emotion. I can't control my emotions. But Jesus does give us a way. Tim Keller notes that the temptation for Christians is to only focus on the spiritual aspect of these kinds of struggles that we have, which results in us just preaching why we shouldn't have anxiety. Uh, on the other side, you have our current society that just focuses on the physical aspects of anxiety and says, oh, you're anxious? It must be just only a chemical imbalance. Here's a pill. The beauty of God's word is that our loving and gracious Father created us and knows our needs, and he gives us both the physical remedy and the spiritual remedy for healing this, this heart issue of anxiety. He tells us what our root problem is, and he addresses it spiritually and physically. This next section here, it says, Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? So what does Jesus tell us to do? What is, that one, what is the one command in there? It's just one word. Consider. That's strange. That that the remedy that Jesus gives is to consider how God has provided for something as small as a flower in the field and how much more will he provide for us. And that brings us to this question, so where are we setting our minds? Anxiety places our thoughts and our heart on the things that we see and I understand they are always present in front of us and they feel very urgent and they feel incredibly important. And yet Jesus, Jesus calls us to step back and to look and say, consider what I've been doing for thousands and thousands of years, how I've provided for the birds and for the field flowers and for everything else. I'm going to provide for you as well. The book, Telling Yourself the Truth, uh, this is a book that, that I read uh, a couple years ago, and it's by William Backus and Mary um, Chapion, and they, they bring home this truth in a way that I think is really powerful. They, they point out that we tell ourselves lies that we believe. We tell ourselves lies like, God won't provide. If, if it really came down to it, God's not going to provide. And when we identify the lies that we tell ourselves, that is the first step to then telling ourselves the truth. God clothes the fields. He feeds the birds. He provides for me. And then we reach into the heart of the issue. God addresses our spiritual need by feeding us the truth of his word. And he addresses our physical need by providing food and clothing for us each day. 
Why are we anxious? Why aren't we more generous? Jesus addresses those root causes because he knows at the end of the day, the lie we tell ourselves is that God's not going to provide. That's a faith issue, is it not? That is at the heart of where our, our lies get to us. And this is, what, this is what he says. This is what Jesus says in verse 31. Therefore, there's that small word again. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. I think one of the main causes for our anxiety is sometimes we think we are the ones who are ultimately responsible for providing for our needs. And that if we don't do anything about it, we won't have it. Jesus says that is how the Gentiles think. Who are the Gentiles? Those are the ones who are not part of God's people. They don't know God. And so they seek after. That, that translation, seek after, it, it's a little bit stronger in Greek. It has this idea of really being consumed or craving after uh, something. And that's what the Gentiles put their minds on. And Jesus says, that's actually one of the reasons that I'm giving to you. Don't put your minds there. And so how, how do we reconcile this? Because I, I get it. We do have to work, right? God has given us work to do. There is a responsibility that we have. What is our role between our work and God's provision? I've often thought of, I've often thought of this principle before. I, I call it the working hard for manna principle. It's, it goes like this. God instructs us to work hard. Right? Proverbs 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And the Bible doesn't condemn being wealthy either. If it did, it would just tell us to be poor or to give 90-whatever percent of our possessions away. But it doesn't do that. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says in verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul talks about what the rich are to do in this present age. But the Bible treats wealth, I believe, much like it treats alcohol. It, it doesn't condemn it outright, but it also recognizes that indulgence and excess are sinful. What happens when, when we indulge in alcohol? It leads to drunkenness. And when we indulge in things and material possessions, what does that lead to? Greed, hoarding, covetousness. And so this working hard for manna principle, it's, think about the, the Israelites, what they had to do every day. They had to get up, they had to get their baskets or whatever it was that they collected, and they had to go out into the hot sun. They had to work to pick up that manna and all of those, that, that food for that day. And no one in Israel could go and say, look at all this manna. This manna came because of all of my hard work. Doesn't that miss the point entirely? Who was the one that provided the manna in the first place? It was God himself. And so I think we ought to treat our wealth that same way. That yes, we have to get up in the morning. We have to go and collect what God has graciously given to us. But at the end of the day, it's not ours. We're stewards of what he has given to us, but it's not ours. We, we didn't, we may, have, we may have had to do work to collect that, but that manna came from the hand of God himself. And so as we close, 
Jesus says this, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I love how real the teachings of Jesus are, and, and we should expect this. But this tells me that my troubles and worries will be a struggle tomorrow. We can expect that. It's not that we should just expect once, once I become a believer, once I follow Christ, everything is going to be roses for me. That, that is not the case at all. Paul talks about all the struggles that he has in toil and hardship and sleepless nights, hunger and thirst. It's not that there are no worries or troubles that will come our way. But as we pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. We're to pray that regularly. It's not a one-time, Lord, give me all the bread that I need for the next however many decades. No, it's coming to him daily, time after time, and, and staying in that close relationship with him. So what do we do with this with this teaching that God has given to us. Uh, my first point, as we've looked at this, is to look for those little words, to see how they connect and say, look at this whole thought that Jesus is giving to us. He is presenting for us what we can do as we choose, are we going to serve God or something else? And how does that look for us? In Philippians chapter 4, I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. <clears throat> I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's that famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is not talking about winning a football game here. He is talking about knowing the sustaining grace of God's provision in his life day after day, regardless of the circumstances, because he knows the God who is in charge of it all. So whatever our situation, our hope is secure. Whatever our lot, God gives us strength to say, it is well with my soul, because we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As Peter says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for all who believe in Christ. This is the assurance that we have. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you <clears throat> that no matter our situation, no matter the trouble that we see around us, Lord, you are great. You rule the entire universe. You provide for the birds, you provide for the flowers in the field, and you give to us graciously. You provide all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, help us to know you. Lord, help us to truly know what it means to serve an all-powerful, risen Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen.